We will read from Titus chapter 2 to begin our learning today. So if you want to find Titus chapter 2 in your Bible, we can begin with that. Paul says to Pastor Titus, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound, at, to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, everybody's thinking again this week, what is he going to do with that? How can you stand there and read us a passage that says women submit to your husbands and don't drink so much wine and all this stuff? And men, be temperate. And slaves, obey your masters and give them a good day's work. How, how in the world are we supposed to deal with that? I bet you're wondering. Well, I would like to start by reminding you that in those days, when Titus was appointed to the church there in Crete, he was entering into a situation that was common, a situation where the doctrines and teachings of the Apostle Paul had been transmitted out of the home base in Ephesus and had been absorbed into communities all over the region. In other words, he was an extremely effective evangelist and he planted churches all over the place. And these churches were operating according to the doctrine that Paul had taught them. But because of poor leadership, they were easily given over to a sort of blended kind of doctrine. In other words, a watered down gospel, a watered down religion was common. Not unlike today, you would probably agree. Because wherever there is a lack of strong pastoral leadership, generally there's blend of what seems right to humans 
and what seems right according to scripture. And we get this weird sort of watered down version of church. The body of Christ isn't so much a body with Christ as its head as it is a body with Christ framed on a picture on the wall. And a lot of people doing church the way they think is best and being heavily influenced by the culture around them. And this was the case in those days. And so Pastor Titus, I call him, has been appointed like Timothy by Paul to go into these churches that are dangerously close to the edge of going off course completely and to put them back on the right track in many of the same ways as my appointment would occur to your church as your pastor. So to put it in perspective, I would get a letter from the bishop, say a little over a year ago, after having been chosen to serve this church, and the bishop's office might transmit that through the district superintendent, but in any case, the bishop says, Dan, in, you know, in a nice letter, he says, here's a letter to Dan from the bishop of the church in Indiana, the United Methodist Church, saying, once again, you are entirely qualified to take this position and we are confident in your leadership and your training and your experience, da 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 da, da. And then they'll say, and here's the church that you're going to and here's what you can call on them for with their great strengths and here are some areas where they have grown weak and weary and they need for you to shore them up. And so in the same way, I'm given spiritual guidance from my head in my church in order to get me off to a good start helping to lead this community of believers called Shiloh to keep us on track following God's teaching. And so this is what Paul has done in his letter to Titus. That's why it's a very specific letter with a very specific set of instructions for that particular setting. And we find that in Paul's letters there is a very uh, the, the skilled Bible scholar, the experienced student of the Bible, will be able to recognize when Paul is administering doctrine and when he's giving specific advice for a specific church. For example, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, now look, your women should not go in to church all jazzed up and full of, you know, fancy hairdos and lots of jewelry and all this kind of stuff. He's not saying across the board that women shouldn't act like women. He's saying at Corinth, there's a problem. The local girls are looking for nice guys to marry. And they've heard that you can find nice single men at church. So they come to church not to learn about God, not to hear the gospel good news, but to find a good fella. And Paul's calling them to account for that. He's saying, if that's why they're there, tell them to dress down, shut up, and listen to the message. Okay, Paul has a way of saying very specific things to particular churches and particular situations. But then he has other occasions, if you watch carefully and listen to the wording carefully, you can tell that he's saying this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine. These are the boundaries. His letter to Titus is a letter about taking the reins of the church in Crete. Just like his letter to Timothy is about taking the reins of a certain church. And so... When you hear today's passage, you have to hear it as a specific message to a particular church. But in order to help understand this better, we need to read 
the words they would have received from Paul when they established the church. In other words, before he sent Titus, before he gave Titus his instructions, Paul had already established churches like the one in Crete based on a certain set of doctrinal standards that he would communicate to them. And we can read those doctrinal standards by reading from his letters to the church at Ephesus, which was kind of the headquarters or the regional launch pad for all of those ministries in that area. So now I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 18. And I think this will start to make some sense. Ephesians 5, starting verse 18. This is Paul again writing. And he starts out by just saying, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. That means that people who drink too much are uninhibited and they tend to do stupid things. So he's just saying, don't get drunk. He says, instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if your spirit is influenced by booze, you're going to do stupid things. If your spirit is influenced by the Spirit of God, you're going to say much different things. In fact, there's the evidence. Want to know if somebody's life is being transformed by the Spirit of God? Their language changes. Their actions change, their values change, and you begin to see this transformative power happening in someone's life. We call that sanctification. It's like going from listening to rap music about treating women like trash and abusing drugs and killing cops to listening to Caleb all the time. That's basically what he's saying. Changes your perspective. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now listen carefully to all of this before you draw conclusions. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now what he's saying is that in every organization, in every home, there is an order. And in order, in, in, in order for that to be a organized and well-functioning home, Someone has to have the last word about things. Someone's got to say, okay, I'll take responsibility for this. And it's usually the man, according to Paul. But he is a man who is to lead his household in the way that Christ leads the church. And we're going to talk a little bit about husbands and wives here in the next few minutes. And let me just tell you that, wives, there's one thing you really need to know about men that is easy to forget. Their love language is respect. They don't, they don't always give you the kind of feedback that you give them because they're not wired that way, most men. Nothing I say today is meant to be a gross generalization. It's simply mostly true most of the time. And so understand that the best way you can tell your husband, the man in your life, that you get it, 
that you understand that this is a person who works hard because his hard work is an expression of his love for his family, making sure that there's plenty of food on the table and a good roof over their heads and good warm clothing in the winter and so on and nice vacations and things like that. This is what men do to show their great affection for their family and their sense of responsibility to them. And a woman can show a great deal of love to a husband by demonstrating respect for that commitment to them. This is not submission to abusive, autocratic and authoritarian leadership in the household. And we're gonna talk about that next, men, so don't think you're getting a pass here. I've just taken it as it comes in this passage. So women, please understand that men are charged with leading their families as Christ leads the church. But rest assured, that's a huge responsibility, which is why men appreciate once in a while being given a pat on the back and a thank you for being courageous enough to protect and provide. Now, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And so, husbands, we are not commanded to lead our households like bullies. We are commanded to love our wives like Christ loves the church. What did Christ do to show his great love for the church? He sacrificed himself completely giving the most that he could give so that the church would be healthy and clean and flourishing. In other words, all the work that a husband does, all of the provision that a husband arranges is meant for the good of the wife and the family and not in some way to be used as leverage to justify abuse. And abuse comes in a variety of forms. It can be bullying, it can be uh, a, a distancing. Men have a tendency sometimes to come home tired and cranky, tired of taking orders from a cranky boss or whatever, and they come home and they wanna sit in their chair and be left alone by this family that they're working so hard to provide for. And I'm sorry, men, but that's just not gonna do. Rather, you want to come home and see the reason for your endurance and your suffering and give glory to God for the privilege of caring for these people. Jesus expects you to see your bride and your children in the same way that he sees his bride and the children of that union. This is why I've been in the habit for almost 30 years of calling my wife my bride. I don't do it so that the women in the church will go, oh, that's so sweet. They do, and it's cool, but I ain't doing it for you. I remind myself daily that this is my bride, just as the church is Jesus' bride, and by always referring to her as my bride, it constantly drives me to treat her the way Jesus would treat his bride, the church. And I have found, frankly, fellas, that the thing that makes for great children is great husbands. You see, children 
tend to learn an awful lot by watching what we do more than listening to what we say. And it really begins with how mothers and fathers treat each other. It has everything to do with how the husband treats his wife and how the wife treats her husband. This will cause children to be much better in the long run than you can imagine that you love your wife in front of them and treat her with dignity and respect and honor that marriage commitment to your bride and women honoring and respecting your husband as the one who is going to lay down his life for you and the children if that's what it takes. When the children see that, it shapes them in amazing ways. And this is what it means when Paul says in verse 27 that Jesus' goal is to present the church radiant and without stain or wrinkle. This is what the husband's goal is, is to present his family before God as a testimony to the Christian witness, to the Spirit of Christ that is witnessed in the man who goes to work and gives the employer all that is due him as a matter of honor and respect for Christ. When they see a person who comes home to his family or her family and shows great love and compassion because he sees or she sees the witness that demonstrates this gift God has given us. I don't like saying this in front of them, but when it dawned on me long ago that having children born with disabilities was a great privilege, it changed everything about how I raised them. Not that I was doing it so bad before, I don't think I was, but what I realized was that God said, you know, I've got to have somebody special to take care of these children because they need a lot more than usual. And it dawned on me, this is a privilege. And I only present that as an example because all of us can say this. All of us can look at our wife, our husband, our children and realize that we've been given a great privilege. God has honored us by asking us to care for something that is very precious to God. And if I asked you to care for my children, you'd be honored too. And if you asked me to care for your children, I'd consider it a great honor. And so in the same way, God is saying, look around you and see what I have given you to care for. Treat it as if it is as precious to you as it is to me. And so this is when Paul is saying that there's a value system undergirding these specific instructions that he's giving, and it is the gospel. It is Jesus who is the prime example and leader of the church, and it is being written to the church. Now that's a digression that I could follow if I'm not careful, but what I want you to understand is, is that much of what Paul is giving in the way of instruction is to the people of God who have become followers of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we as the church must resist the urge to hold people who are outside of the church to a standard that they don't understand and haven't accepted. Therefore, we are really looking at each other when we read these passages and we are holding each other accountable to what the Bible teaches us about life as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul means when he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. 
He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. Do you realize, men, that your wife has given herself to you? Now, I know, again, that this isn't 110% of the time, but I'm pretty sure I'm right in the most part here. Women, when you married that man, there was something in you that was letting go of self-determination and self-ownership, and you were surrendering yourself over to this person. You were giving yourself to this man. Men, do you understand that that's what she was doing at the wedding day? On wedding day, she was looking into your eyes and she is saying, I am giving my life to you. Men, don't ever forget that. Never forget that. Because that's the way women think about this. How many men, after they've conquested, they've, they've, uh, they didn't come out right, but they, came, they have the conquest of the woman. They finally won the woman that they have loved, and they finally married this woman, and, and now they've set up a household, and then the man goes, well, check that off my list. Meanwhile, this woman is going, I've given myself to you, but somehow I thought there'd be more to that than this. Men, you haven't accumulated stuff when you acquired a wife and children. And you must never forget that. Because the love of self that Paul's talking about here is reflected in the love that this woman and these children are giving you. They are trusting you to care for them and to not just provide for them, to be there for them. And there's a disrespect to yourself that happens when you forget that privilege. Therefore, don't allow yourself to get so unhealthy and sick that you die young and leave them stuck with a mortgage and a lot of responsibilities. Don't become so frivolous that you spend more time on your bass boat or your Harley than you do with your family. I said this in the first service and a lot of people laughed and I saw some women jabbing the men. I probably could say golf courses and things like that. And then I started thinking, you know, I may not be around to preach the next sermon next week. <laughs> some guy in a Harley pulling a bass boat with his golf clubs on the back are probably gonna run me over and kill me. But you know, all those things are good, but they should not be at the exclusion of your relationship with the wife who gave herself to you for care and love, who gave you children to help everything that you represent as a couple flourish and thrive. This is the mystery Paul's talking about. That's why he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on this earth. You know, children, you thought you were off the hook this morning. Honor your father and mother because God gave them the responsibility of raising you and taking care of you. 
And even though they feel like obstacles to your joy most of the time, they are in fact people who love you deeply and are very committed to your well-being. And sometimes they will act as though your short-term joy isn't very important, but it's only because they're looking at a long-term objective, which is to make you a responsible, self-reliant image of Christ in your own right. And as a father of adult children now, I can tell you that it gives me an enormous satisfaction to see my adult children acting like responsible, self-reliant, Christ-honoring people. This is why we do it. So kids, I know it's hard to believe, but we don't actually lay in bed at night plotting the next day's misery for our children. In fact, we go to sleep praying for them and then wake up the next morning praying for ourselves to have what it takes to do it again as well as we can. Nevertheless, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You can't really expect them to be good children if you set a really poor example and then smack them upside the head because they do what they see you doing. That's what he's saying. Set a good example. And this could be fathers and mothers, I think. Show them the way, don't tell them the way. It only works once in a while to say, do as I say and not as I do. Pretty soon they catch on. And the things you do become more influential than the things you say. So what do you say when you come home from work? They're listening. What do you say when you come home from church? They're listening. What do you say when they hear you talking on the phone, or they look over your shoulder and you're texting or looking at Facebook and stuff like that. They're watching, they're listening. Don't exasperate them by showing them one example and then trying to teach them another. That's exasperating. And then finally, I'm gonna jump ahead here because I'm running out of time. He says, slaves, honor your masters. And listen, in those days, slavery was a little different. There were slaves who became so because the conquering enemy grabbed them from their homeland and dragged them back to make them slaves. But more often than not, the ones that Paul's talking about here are what you would call indentured servants. They're people who have made an arrangement with someone who has better resources than them. So we were talking about this earlier today. If you've got to get a new air conditioning system and you don't have the money, you could conceivably offer to work all summer for the heating and air conditioning contractor in exchange for a new system for your home, and that would be a sort of indentured servitude. You'd, you'd agree to take no money, but you were going to get something you really needed in exchange. And during that period, you were in effect a slave, doing whatever this person asked you to do until your debt had been canceled. And so Paul says, honor God in the way you do that. So wherever we work, men and women, children, Whatever we do, it is meant to give glory to God and to show how the gospel changes our nature. This is what we call sanctification. It changes our nature. We become better than we were. We become less like the human population and more like the heavenly population. And in time, we begin to see the world differently. 
And the world begins to see us differently. And when the people you work with see what a transformative experience the Spirit has made of your life, that's when they'll finally accept your invitation to come to church. Because, you know, I hear this one all the time. I hear people say, well, I keep telling people we got a new pastor and he's a really good preacher and you ought to come see him and yada, 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 yada. And I really appreciate it. I really do. Thank you very much. I'm honored by that. But then you'll tell me usually that they never seem to come to church. Sometimes it's probably because they're waiting to see if that great preaching and that new spiritual leadership is actually changing you because so far you seem just like the same son of a gun that you were a year ago at work. I'm sorry, but think about it. What tells the story of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life better than a changed life? You don't have to be a recovering drug addict or fresh out of prison or anything like that. You can just be a pretty decent person whose priorities are changing, whose speech is changing, whose values are changing, whose responses to the world are changing because the Spirit is rewiring you every day. Believe me, one day someone will say, you know, you're not the same as you used to be. What's going on? And you can say, well, I heard the Holy Spirit can really turn this life around if we just let him. So I started letting him, and look what's happening. This is what we call sanctification. So Paul's letter to Titus is to say, people in Crete, you're not fooling anybody, you know. You're living one way, but you're talking another, and it's not fooling anybody. And I got news for you. People in Jasper have the same problem. People in Shiloh have the same problem. People everywhere have the same problem. Christians can talk a good game, but until there's real transformative power at work in our lives and in our communal life here as the church of Shiloh, nobody's going to believe that we aren't just running our own church with a picture of Jesus on the wall. When it feels like we are the extension of Jesus in our community, watch out. Something profound is going to happen, I guarantee you. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts as we come to your table, set to glorify you in our faith. Amen. Now we come to the Lord's table. And as we do, we see what Wesley, John Wesley was the founder of the United Methodist Church as we understand it. And Wesley said, these are among the means of grace. That means that while the Holy Spirit works in invisible and unseen ways to transform communities and individuals, there are also physical means of grace that we can witness like baptism like marriage and certain other expressions of the church on earth. And Holy Communion was one of those. And so John Wesley would say that you come to the communion table in order that you might experience a means of grace, a way of having God's presence transmitted to you in an unseen but very real way. And the beauty of this is, is that everything I've talked about today seems like an act of will, a decision that you make. But what I'm really saying is, is that you simply must surrender the decision-making process to the Spirit. 
Instead of saying, this is how I'm going to retreat my wife or my husband from now on, you say, Spirit, lead me so that I can treat my husband or my wife and my children the way that you have taught. Because everything we're describing here are signs that you are being led by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? That what we're asking us, what God is asking us to do is to hear the word, not so that we can try to do these things, but so that we can trust the spirit to lead us to do these things. And we'll know the spirit is running our lives when we see ourselves doing these things. Because God is so full of grace and mercy, we can come to the Lord's table, receive the elements and something that we didn't have to work for or even fully understand happens. And it's a supernatural expression of God's grace through the Holy Spirit.